Ready to go? Okay. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming. We're going to go ahead and get started on today's session. Um, um, so my name's David Stein. I'm a storage business development manager um, based here on the West Coast. Um, and today's session is going to be about enterprise storage. Um, we're going to be talking about a couple different topics, um, but the agenda is going to range from a brief overview of all of our storage services um, to how do I migrate data into AWS, um, and then we'll focus probably the last half of the session uh, mostly on block and file storage. Um, I'll talk about object storage a little bit um, in the overview, um, but the bulk of the session thinking about enterprises and where their data sits today, which is typically on uh, NAS and SAN arrays on-premise or direct attached storage um, that's going to focus a little bit more on block and file options. Um, and so thinking about on-premise storage arrays, um, it's very different than um, servers and compute. Um, servers and compute, um, you might buy a dozen here or a hundred there, um, and you buy them kind of as needed. Um, but storage arrays um, are a little bit more complicated to procure, um, set up, and manage. Um, they have controllers typically with um, shelves of drives underneath them um, that require a lot of planning in terms of, um, you know, how much um, do you need to support in terms of memory and CPU on those controllers? Um, how many disks do I need? How many shelves do I need? What type of connection do I have between them? All the networking that goes with it. Um, and it could take three to six months or even longer to procure some of these arrays. Um, but they typically stay in your environment for um, three to five years, sometimes you know, even longer. It's not unheard of to come across a customer who's going on year six and trying to extend their warranty. Um, but you also might get um, pushed into buying a new array earlier than you thought just because something's end of life. Um, and then you have the CapEx costs that go along with it, as well as the ongoing costs, not just for maintenance, but anytime you need to add shelves of disk or you need to add additional software for uh, additional functionality, um, those can all add to the complexity of setting up and managing this. And so when we think about um, you know, how that parlays into storage on AWS, um, you know, we've got a pretty broad portfolio. Um, we've been doing this for over 10 years, um, 13 years now, and you know, we really take to heart listening to customers and understanding what kind of technology and protocols they need to be successful, as well as things like performance and features and price um, to move their data over into AWS and be able to run your applications and databases or whatever it may be on, on us. Um, and if you look at the um, portfolio we have today, it kind of follows into you know, three general buckets. Um, you have the rehost, um, or what we'll call lift and shift, um, and that's going to be your block and file, which we're focusing on today mostly. Um, so this is going to be used for databases, applications, um, traditional file structures that need a hierarchical um, directory to host your files in. Um, and you, know, you look at companies um, you know, that are starting to you know, move over to AWS, um, you know, like Lone Logic or, or Lionsgate, who look at us and go, okay, well, we need to be able to um, move this data off of us. We know we have certain types of IOPS or throughputs and capacity, um, and we just want to be able to fork this over without, uh, with minimal re-architecting. Um, and then the other side of the fence, you've got um, what we call re-platform. Um, so Storage Gateway is a hybrid service that allows you to offer um, typical NFS or you know, SAN-type protocols to sync your data into AWS from on-premise. So here's a way to use traditional protocols that you know and, and love from on-premise and be able to put that into something like an S3 object store where you normally might not be able to put it in right away because your applications um, don't talk object. And then lastly, we've got um, the re-architect, which is your object store, right? So here's looking at different types of 
um, unstructured data in your environment and go, do I want to re-architect um, my, my platform to talk object and take advantage of this low cost and high durability? Um, or do I want to lift and shift it into um, something like EFS or an EBS, an EC2 type setup? Um, so these are kind of decisions that you have to think about as you're starting to migrate over to us. And if we look at the journey of what customers take to move into the cloud, um, it, it, there's no set journey. Everybody does something a little bit differently, but you know, very common, you know, we'll see people start with going, okay, well, how do we start with some low-hanging fruit into what uh, we can put into AWS? Um, backup and restore, backup recovery are usually a good first use case. Um, it's something that is non-disruptive to your environment, um, and uh, it's easy to set up either using native tools or third-party tools, um, and allows you to recover it without having to build a secondary data center or offsite location and take advantage of the cloud. Um, you know, next we'll see customers, especially media companies, look at things like Active Archive. Um, so when you have a lot of media files on premise or a lot of tape data that you need to move over to AWS, um, we have different platforms that work really well with that as well. Um, and then we'll start to look at data lakes. Um, so data lake is a way to um, take a bunch of disparate um, you know, data warehouses and databases and move it to a common platform. Um, so you can have a lot of different applications um, or analytics talk to it um, without having to run it in isolated areas. Um, so it's about consolidation um, a lot of times and taking the data that's in your data center and consolidating it into a single data source. Um, a lot of times this is used for analytics and also offline. But um, the focus today is gonna be more on the last two, which is database and analytics and enterprise applications. Um, so here again, it's probably a little bit more of the lift and shift. Um, so let's take your production databases, let's take your file servers and move them into AWS. And how do we do that? And if we look at how that maps to different AWS services, um, backup and restore is typically gonna use um, S3 and Glacier, because um, again, it's a cheap, durable way to get your data um, into AWS. Um, storage gateways are a way to talk to object store without having to use um, the object store API directly, and you could use your typical NFS, uh, SMB, um, iSCSI type protocols. Um, you also have um, uh, Snow Family with the Snowball and uh, EFS as well. Um, Active Archive is gonna be typically S3 and Glacier. Um, data Lakes and IoT um, use a lot of S3, um, EFS, and storage gateway. Um, and then the database and analytics and enterprise applications are gonna focus more on EFS, EBS, um, as well as our native services like uh, you know, Redshift, Dynamo, Aurora, and, and RDS. Um, so what do you consider when, when selecting the storage? Um, you know, first, when you're evaluating for a new application, um, the primary thing to think about is you know, what is gonna be the, um, the file interface? Um, and how do I um, map that to a specific service? Um, second's gonna be the features and performance. So here you wanna think about um, you know, what are the features um, I need um, you know, with the storage and you know, what, what is the performance gonna be in terms of throughput and IOPS? Um, and then lastly, you have to balance all of that out with cost um, and what's gonna make the most sense uh, for your application. Um, and again, this kind of maps back to file, block, and object. Um, so file for your typical um, uh, hierarchical um, file data, um, and then block, which is gonna be more just um, you know, on-premise, and, and so sorry, file is gonna be kind of equivalent to your NAS data on-premise. Um, block is gonna be uh, more analogous to your SAN data on-premise. 
um, or sometimes even direct, direct attached storage or local storage on your servers where you just need a, a dumb block device to be able to talk to the application. Um, and then you're gonna have object, which gives you, um, you know, an API that's internet accessible to be able to talk to your objects in an unstructured way without that file uh, hierarchy. And again, that's gonna be EFS, EBS, and, and S3 and Glacier accordingly. Um, and then if you look at the performance, um, which is the other thing to think about, you know, Block is gonna offer the lowest latency. Um, so it's really good for databases, um, but it doesn't scale to a lot of throughput. Um, so for applications which are typically gonna be file data, certain types of data analytics or media workflows that need higher levels of throughput, um, then file's gonna be the, the good option there. And then object storage, um, of course, has the um, highest amount of throughput, um, but it comes at the sacrifice of slightly higher latencies than you would get with uh, block storage or file storage. And then the other thing to think about is availability and durability. Um, so different um, uh, storage platforms on AWS have different architectures. So when you think about the um, concepts of AWS availability zones and AWS regions, um, S3 standard, S3 um, infrequent access, um, Glacier and EFS, they all use multiple availability zones. Um, so S3 and Glacier are able to offer um, 11 nines of durability. Um, so we have very high durability, um, and this is a very safe place to put your data. Um, but again, the performance on that is gonna have slightly higher latencies, so it's not always gonna be the best for databases, for example, um, but it's really good um, for a lot of unstructured data and data where you can need that high level of durability. And then for other um, applications, um, typically gonna be on, on the database side, um, and then also S3 OneZone, which is a new um, storage class for S3 we announced this year. Um, that will operate more on a single AZ. Um, so for S3 OneZone, you get a lower cost with a lot of the same durability and availability um, numbers that you would get with normal S3. And then EBS, um, you get that high performance with a single availability zone. Um, and then there's ways you can architect that to um, make it redundant across availability zones I'll talk here about in the end. Um, so let's talk a little bit about data migration. Um, that's the first thing you wanna think about when you migrate the data to the cloud is, you know, how do I migrate? Um, so when you kind of look over the common drivers of migrating to the cloud, um, you know, saving on CapEx, you know, quicker agility, um, operational resilience, <clears throat> um, access to new services that you wouldn't have by on-premise, whether it be some new things around AI or machine learning or um, different types of services we have in analytics um, that are new, um, it's a good way to get the data into the cloud so you can do new and interesting things with it. Uh, but the pain points, of course, that you wanna consider is, you know, disruption to your application, um, how fast is it gonna be? How much is it gonna cost? Um, you know, what are the channels I do to migrate the data over, as well as the compatibility, right? Will this be compatible with the cloud like it is on premises? Um, so AWS, we have a lot of options for data transfer. Um, we've got um, offline um, data transfer like uh, Snowmobile and Snowball and, and um, Snowball Edge, um, as well as our new Snowball Edge Compute Optimize. Um, so these are all ways to get your data in bulk. Um, that's kind of more offline. Um, so if you need to transfer a whole bunch of data, but you can handle the disruption to your application, that's a way to go. Um, storage gateway is a hybrid one, right? So storage gateway is gonna allow you to move the data online over to AWS, over Direct Connect or VPN, while um, giving you a common interfaces that you know today and be able to store it in S3. Once it's in S3, um, using storage gateway, 
um, you can do a bunch of different things with it, right? You've got access to the data in that S3 bucket, and then you could start moving it into different, you know, file or block protocols and wherever you need that data to be, or maybe even some of our native services. Um, and then for online data uh, transfer, um, we have a couple things. There's actually something new we announced Monday called DataSync, um, which I'll talk about here in a minute, and then in a, in a managed SSTP service as well. Um, then you've got real-time things like Kinesis um, and Kinesis data streams that will stream directly into um, AWS as well. Um, so DataSync is a new product um, we announced yesterday. Um, so this is a managed service um, that you set up to easily install on a, a VM on-premise and migrate the data um, at a much faster rate than you'd be able to do using common scripts and uh, protocols today. Um, so this is designed to get data into S3 or EFS. Um, but after installing a VM on premises and uh, going through a few quick clicks in the console, you know, you'll be able to migrate that data in. Um, so we have um, developed a protocol around this to you know, enable you know, parallel multi-threading um, transfer speeds um, where you could, should get something up to 10 times what you'd be able to do on premises. And this works bi-directionally um, as well. So you could set it up to migrate from AWS to the, your own on-premises on arrays or you could set it up to migrate from on-premises to AWS. Um, but it's easy to use. Um, you don't have to write any scripts. Um, it's just a few quick clicks in the console. Um, it's secure and reliable. It's fully encrypted. Um, it's uh, integrated with CloudWatch, so you could check on metrics. Um, and it's also cost-effective at four cents per gig of data copied with no minimum commitments or upfront fees. Um, so we'll use cases that we uh, are seeing with this um, and expect to see as customers start to adopt it. Um, you know, one is the obvious of migrating on-premises data to AWS, um, so you could set it and it'll send a full copy and then it'll start to change and track incremental copies of the data from there. Um, but you might also use it to kind of in a, uh, a hybrid scenario where you could uh, move data into the cloud um, for, you know, quick analysis. Um, you know, if you don't have enough compute on-premises or you want to be able to run a job quickly, um, you could um, schedule a, or maybe you have scheduled jobs where you need to move data into AWS process and then move it back out. Um, that's a very common use case. Um, and then replication for business continuity too. So you could send this data into EFS or S3 um, you know, for backup and DR purposes as well. Um, the point is, again, that not only is it easy and simple to use and, and cost effective, but you could schedule these things and, and have it work automatically for you as well. Um, we also announced our uh, SFT, AWS transfer for SFTP. Um, so similar to DataSync, this is a managed service, so you no longer have to set up and manage your own SFTP servers. Um, so SFTP is something, of course, that customers have been doing for uh, a very long time on premises. Um, it's not something people particularly enjoy doing. Um, so we want to abstract that out and make it easy to use um, while um, you know, reducing some of the administrative overhead of having to set this up and manage it yourself. Um, and again, this is also going to be um, fully managed, um, simple to use, and very cost effective as well. Um, but what about databases, right? So the first two are kind of like uh, options for getting data into S3 and, and EFS. Um, and, uh, but if you have a database to migrate over um, and you need to be able to cut that over quickly with minimal downtime, um, you could use our database migration service. Um, so this is a way to migrate your data into um, a database directly onto AWS um, and failover. You can also use our schema conversion tool as well. So if you have a database, um, you know, it's Oracle on-premises and you want to migrate it to MySQL um, or Aurora, um, you can quickly change the schema design without a whole lot of work and administrative overhead on your part um, and migrate that over as well. 
Um, so DMS uh, for database migration service and SCT for schema conversion tool, um, they're used to modernize your applications. So if you need to move it from um, a proprietary uh, database to more of an open source one, it's a very common one. It's used to migrate um, databases over to AWS as well as within AWS if you're doing things like moving between VPCs, et cetera. Um, and then also for uh, replication too. Um, so you could use it to replicate data into AWS for um, a DR type strategy. There's also third party tools out there as well. Um, so I don't want to limit it to just the AWS offerings. Um, there's a very common tools out there like Cloud Indoor, Zerto, Beam, um, that do this very well um, as well. And I recommend taking a look at those. So let's jump into uh, file storage. Um, so we'll do a handful of slides on this and then the last half or so will be focused on a lot of the block storage and, and kind of more databases and applications. Um, so for file storage, we have Amazon Elastic File Store or EFS. Um, so EFS has been around for a few years. Um, and the idea is if you think about the uh, slide I showed at the beginning about the pain points of managing an on-premises array, um, EFS has a lot of the same benefits of being able to abstract that out and make it easy to lift and shift your applications. So for IT administrators, um, you know, what if we could eliminate the file system management and maintenance um, at scale? Um, but also for your application owners and developers, you know, for this, what if we could lift and shift without having to re-architect any of your code or enable you to build new uh, cloud-native applications that are highly scalable without having to worry about buying and procuring and setting up infrastructure? And then lastly, um, you know, for business managers, um, we make it easy to predict cost um, as well as uh, spend less time managing um, the overhead of setting up your own arrays. So EFS um, provides simple and scalable storage that's cost-effective and very scalable um, and elastic. Um, so it makes it easy to migrate without having to handle a lot of the administrative tasks that we mentioned on the uh, previous slide. And if you look at some of the core tenets of EFS, um, it's elastic and scalable, um, it's high performance. Um, we have some new storage classes I'll talk about here in a minute. Um, but at its core, it offers shared access. Um, so EFS natively will be allowed to share a file system with hundreds or thousands of different EC2 compute instances within a region. Um, it's also highly available and durable, similar to the S3 model, um, while also being secure and compliant with encryption um, of data at rest. Uh, and in transit. Um, but what we mean by that, so simple, um, is uh, it's no hardware or filers you have to install. Uh, with a few clicks in the console, um, you can have a file system ready to go. You don't even have to tell us how much storage you want to provision because it's pay for what you use, um, not what you provision. So the file system's easy to set up. Um, you create a mount target so the instances in your um, availability zone will be able to talk to the file system. Um, the file system itself is region-wide, um, so it's highly available and durable within a region, and any file server in any availability zone within that region will be able to access that data. Um, but it's also um, seamless integration. Um, it's a typical uh, NFS version 4.1 protocol, um, so it works just like you would expect it to be on-premise. Um, and uh, it's got all the same file system semantics. Um, it's POSIX compliant. Um, it'll work with all your standard OS file system and APIs all while giving you a simple pricing and forecasting. Um, since you only pay for what you use um, and not what you provision, um, it makes it easy. You don't have to worry about pre-provisioning um, and growing that as you go. Um, which brings us to the next point of EFS's Elastic. Um, so what we mean by Elastic is um, you, again, you don't have to worry about pre-provisioning, but um, since the data system will just grow and shrink as you add and delete files. 
Um, so it'll even reduce in size as well. <clears throat> and you only pay for the data you use, um, so you don't have to pay for anything that you pre-provision. Um, so this makes it very easy to um, scale your file system up and down for a variety of different use cases without having to predict what that storage amount's gonna be or having to go in and scale it as time goes. There's no minimum fee and you only pay for the storage space that you use. Um, it's also scalable, um, so we can scale up to petabyte scale. Um, throughput and IOPS scale automatically as the file system grows. Um, so performance is, um, there's two types of performance modes I'll talk about. The primary one is gonna be uh, the burst model, which is the original model, where your throughput scales literally <clears throat> as you grow. There's both a baseline um, throughput as well as a burst throughput. Um, so you can get extra throughput above and beyond what you expect. And that grows literally. So as you start to add data in, um, the performance will grow with it without having to think about it. We also now have the option to pre-provision amount of throughput as well if you need a higher level of throughput. Um, but it gives you consistent low latencies regardless of the file system size um, and support for uh, up to thousands of concurrent NFS connections. Um, so as long as you're spinning up your servers, uh, Linux servers in the availability zone or region where the file system is, um, you know, our file system will be able to handle it um, you know, based on the amount of capacity and throughput that you have. Um, and all this being highly durable and available. Um, so since EFS is a region-wide service similar to S3, um, the service is meant to, um, it, it's meant to um, be highly available no matter what AZ you're working in. So if you need to spin up servers in a different AZ, you can access the same file system, um, which gives it a superior um, availability model to a traditional NAS array, um, which is typically gonna live within a single data center um, or sometimes up to two data centers if you wanna use some sort of synchronous type replication between uh, your data centers. Uh, but again, you have to set that up and manage the filers and the uh, storage volumes yourself, um, and the benefit of EFS is you don't really have to worry about all of that, right? Um, we handle the spilers, the storage volumes, um, as well as the replication between availability zones to give you that high level of availability and durability your applications expect without having to set up and manage any of that. Um, so it's really good for production and tier zero applications. Um, so uh, the two performance models, and there's also two storage classes, which we announced on Monday, or pre-announced anyway. Uh, but for performance, like I mentioned, you've got the burst um, model. Um, so that is a standard amount of throughput per gigabyte you provision. And that'll scale literally as you add data into your file system and grow it. Um, but we also have a way to provision throughput independently of the capacity. Um, <clears throat> so this is an option to go, okay, well I need more throughput than I would get based on the file system I have and the bursting and baseline throughput model of the, the bursting one. Um, so you could provision that separately and uh, get a guaranteed amount of um, throughput. We also have two storage classes for EFS, uh, or we will have two storage classes. Um, the primary one, which is um, gonna be higher performance based, <clears throat> and then also the new infrequent access. So if you're familiar with S3 infrequent access, it's got some similar characteristics. Um, but the idea is that if you enable this lifecycle policy in your file system, um, we'll automatically move data over 30 days into a colder tier where you're gonna expect to pay a lot less for it. Um, so you've got uh, up to 85% savings by enabling this. Most file data gets cold very quickly, um, which is why we developed this. Um, and customers are telling us they wanted um, you know, a little bit cheaper of a way to put all this older data. So not only do we offer something at a colder tier, um, which is more cost effective, but we give you an automatic way to set a lifecycle policy so that data can automatically migrate down um, into that colder tier without you having to fully manage that. 
Um, so use cases for EFS, um, it's a wide variety of use cases. Um, it, it goes across um, scale-out jobs um, versus metadata-intensive jobs. Um, your scale-out jobs are gonna need high throughput and a lot of parallel I.O. So we'll see that different analytics workflows, different media workflows, um, to the other side of the fence, which is low latency and serial I.O. for your metadata-intensive jobs, which are gonna be more home directory user shares um, and dev tooling. And in the middle, um, which leans probably a little bit more towards the um, low latency and serial I.O., but could be high throughput and, serial and, and parallel, is things like enterprise apps that need shared file storage, um, web serving, um, CMS, um, content management, database backups is a very popular use case. Um, so if you're using like a SQL server or MySQL server and you wanna use native backup tools um, to send it from EC2 to EFS, this is a great option that customers will use while storing it for you know, a week or so on EFS while scripting it to then move to S3 for a colder tier. But now with the EFS IA, um, you could have that um, automatically migrate to a colder tier within EFS. Um, and then container storage is another popular use case as well. So how does this look? Um, so we've kind of talked about how it's simple, scalable, elastic, it's highly durable and available. Um, this is um, an architecture of how you would set this up yourself, you know, whether it was on-premises or in AWS. Um, as you could see, and I mentioned this earlier, you've got the NFS servers or your filers. Um, you've got your storage volumes you have to set up and provision yourself. Um, and then you have your NFS clients you have to talk to. But in order to make it highly durable and available as a service that we offer, you're also gonna have to cross-connect and have these talk between availability zones. So you're setting up a lot of redundant hardware and having to set, manage that yourself. And really that's a lot of undifferentiated heavy lifting um, that you shouldn't have to worry about. Ultimately what you care about is getting um, NFS access that's highly durable, available, and simple and easy to use to your application servers or um, home directories without having to worry about this. So the EFS architecture simplifies this. <clears throat> um, most of what you saw at the bottom on the previous screen is simplified by this group of red blocks down at the bottom, which is gonna be your EFS file share. Um, and that is a region-wide service. Um, so you could take servers in any availability zone and create a mount target and have that talk to the same EFS share. It doesn't matter what availability zone they're in, they'll all be able to see the exact same data um, under a single namespace. So we really simplify the architecture um, and just again, a few clicks in the console, you've got the file system up and running without having to go through the complicated setup of managing your own filers and storage volumes and having them talk to each other between availability zones. Um, so next, um, we'll talk about pricing and TCO. Um, so EFS um, standard is gonna be 30 cents per gig and the infrequent access is four and a half cents per gig using US East pricing. Um, so how does that look like per month um, or, or set up to uh, work um, compared to your own installation? Um, if you wanna, and, and this is a very common thing that comes up with customers, we wanna make sure we understand the comparison um, because when you're setting up and managing your own servers, you've gotta pay for your EC2 resources, you have to pay for your EBS volumes, um, you have to pay for the inter-AZ data transfer cost. So just to create a dual multi, um, dual AZ architecture to create something highly available, um, you'd be looking at uh, 599 per month for a 600 gig volume, plus the administrative overhead of having to set this up and manage it. Since EFS is 30 cents per gig, um, sorry, it's a 500 gig data store, but you would over-provision um, by setting up your own, right? Because when you set up your EBS volumes, you need to create a provision capacity. Um, and 600 gigs is probably conservative. Um, you might even go seven, 800 or up to a terabyte. With EFS, it's simple. At 30 cents per gig times 500 gigs per month, um, you're at 150 bucks per month compared to the 599 of setting this up yourself. 
even if you didn't care about the durability um, and you didn't want a dual AZ setup, you know, you're still looking at um, you know, 60 per month on the compute, um, you know, 170-ish on the uh, storage, um, plus, and even if you take out that data transfer cost, you're still pretty comparable, again, while having your own administrative overhead of setting this up and managing it yourself and keeping it up and running. Um, so this is a list of EFS customers using us today. Um, so you've got Digital Relab. Um, they're using us for containers and serverless environment. Um, they were able to save 43% um, while scaling performance um, and saving on idle compute with zero refactoring. Um, you've got Celgene, um, which is using us for genomics. Um, they were able to speed their time to market and help their patients faster um, by using EFS. Um, Reuters is another company. Um, they do content serving and um, websites. Um, they save 10,000 a month on their bill by moving to AW or EFS because they only pay for what they use. They don't have to provision the storage and the uh, server volumes to manage this themselves, nor do they have to worry about running out of space or bandwidth. Um, so they can just grow and scale as they add data without having to manage that aspect. Um, so for the rest of the session, we're gonna focus on block storage um, as this tends to take up the bulk of customers' environments on premises with applications and databases. Um, we do have, I forgot to mention this earlier, but um, we don't cover a lot of S3 and object storage in here. Um, for data lakes, um, active archive, <coughs> things like that, like we mentioned at the beginning, we have a handful of different sessions here talking about that. Um, but since most enterprise storage tends to be on block and file on premises, and we wanna look at the initial lift and shift into AWS, um, which is a common migration approach, EFS and EBS provide the easiest way to do that. Um, we'll typically see customers lift and shift and then start to re-architect. Um, and to kind of harp on that a little bit, um, we've got native services, right? So what you have to think about when you start to migrate these applications over to us is, <clears throat> do I wanna go straight into EC2 or EBS or take advantage of native services? Um, we recommend looking at native services first because they take out the administrative overhead of having to set up and manage this. Um, RDS abstracts away the um, having to set up and manage your database servers. Um, Aurora and Dynamo for uh, SQL and NoSQL databases, they even abstract the uh, need to set up your volumes. Um, so kind of like EFS, how it simplifies storage by just allowing you to put storage into your uh, platform without worrying about scaling and provisioning and performance. You know, both of those work similarly while also leveraging multiple availability zones. Um, so they're very good services to use. Um, and since uh, Aurora and RDS are um, or Aurora anyway is based on MySQL or Postgres, it should be very similar to any SQL or Postgres servers you have. Um, if you have Oracle um, on-premises or SQL server, RDS makes it easy so you don't have to worry about managing the databases. Um, but even data warehousing, right? If you have a Vertica or Teradata data to warehouse you wanna move over to us, um, you know, Amazon Redshift makes this very easy as well. Um, you know, from a MapReduce and Hadoop standpoint, um, if you're using Cloudera, Hortonworks, or MapR, you know, Amazon EMR is a very good choice, um, and then EFS as well. Um, and so what you think about is with, um, <clears throat> you know, those databases is, and as you're moving over is, if you can't lift and shift it for some reason, and there's a, a few reasons why people can't um, move it into the services, and you do wanna lift and shift it and use the same protocols, then you would wanna use um, EC2 and EBS. Um, and that's what the rest of this session is gonna be focused on. Um, we don't talk a whole lot about the other services, mostly because they abstract the need to set up and manage your storage. Um, but for EBS, and a lot of what I talk here is gonna be applicable for RDS as well. So RDS uses um, similar um, mechanisms um, which make it relatable as well. But Amazon EBS 
um, <clears throat> you know, we make it uh, still transparent, reliable, and performant. So transparent, you have minimal re-architecting for applications. Um, you can lift it and shift it without having to worry about um, um, re-architecting, and you can adjust performance and price on the fly with our elastic volumes. Um, it's also highly available and fault tolerant, failure tolerant. So we handle replication behind the scenes with EBS, um, so you don't have to, um, which is foundational for enterprise applications, and then also perform it. So you get a lot of throughput and IOPS, um, which is dependent on you know, what types of volumes you use, and I'll, I'll kind of go over into that as well. So if we look at all of our block storage offerings, it's not just EBS. Um, we have EC2 instance store um, with the i3s and H1 instance types. You've got EBS SSD back volumes, um, so GP2 and IO1, um, our general purpose and IO1 volumes. And then you have HDD back volumes. Um, so that's gonna be your ST1 and SC1 uh, volumes. Um, so Amazon EC2 instance store, um, the, the big difference here is that it's, you know, it's local to the instance, um, so it's fast, right? You could deploy an i3 and get millions of IOPS and very high throughput, um, but you, uh, it's not persistent to the data store. So every time you stop and restart your instance, that data disappears unless you're um, backing it up. Um, it's not replicated, um, so it's just a single copy, um, and there's no built-in snapshot support or SSD or HDD. Um, so this is important to consider, even if you have applications that don't care about redundancy, um, because they handle it at the node layer. You see this with NoSQL databases like Cassandra and Mongo. Um, you see it with different data analytics tools. Um, we still see customers using EBS, which is not something they would typically do on-premises. Um, with those types of um, applications, you wouldn't use um, SAN storage. Um, but when you move to the cloud, the story changes a little bit because um, you lose that data persistence. And every time you stop and restart that instance, that data is no longer there. Um, and it could take hours or days sometimes to build new nodes in a cluster for a Cassandra cluster, for example. Um, but you also, um, customers really want that snapshot support to make it easy to back up. Um, they also want the um, <clears throat> built-in encryption as well that you've got with it. Um, so EBS, the volume um, persists independently of EC2. Um, so it makes it easy to right scale um, or right size your environment. Um, so you could pick the compute based on the CPU and memory that you need. Um, and then size the storage completely independently. So this allows you to scale your storage as you go um, without necessarily having to bump up into a higher um, EC2 instance than you might not normally need. Um, you can detach and reattach between uh, instances within the same availability zone, so it makes it very portable as well. Um, so EBS, um, it is a one-to-one -one, um, mapping on the volume side anyway to the instances, um, so an EBS, volume can attach to one instance, um, but you can attach multiple EBS volumes to a single instance. Um, and uh, people do that for a variety of use cases. Uh, you have boot volumes, um, data volumes, um, and different types of data volumes, so you might need to attach it. Similar might how you do on-premises by creating different volumes. You would just create different volumes here, um, attach, or different LUNs, I would say, but on AWS, you create different volumes and attach it to the instances. Um, so this allows you to separate volumes and get different performance characteristics. Um, so the benefits here, you know, again, it's gonna be persistent. Um, so you can de stop and restart the instance, detach the volumes um, without losing any of the data. Um, it's elastic as well. Um, so EBS Elastic Volumes allows you to change volume types live without taking your volume offline, as well as change your um, capacity by scaling up and changing performance on um, our provisioned IOPS volumes. Um, so if you're lift and shifting into the cloud and you're not sure what type of volume you need, we'll go into this in a few slides, but it makes it easy to adjust that on the fly as you go. 
Um, it's highly available, so we're designed for five nines of availability. Um, durability, which is um, not something that most on-premise SAN vendors, you know, word um, durability around. It's typically just around availability. Um, so AWS EBS, um, Amazon EBS, is a 0.1 to 0.2% annual failure rate on the durability. Um, what that translates to is if you have 1,000 volumes in your environment, um, you could expect to lose one or two per year. So you want to use EBS snapshots or uh, backup mechanisms or some sort of high availability or durability to um, uh, create an NHA structure if you needed something more than that. Um, and then secure, so we support encryption at rest and encryption in transit um, for all EBS volumes as well. So we talked earlier about the SSD and HDD uh, buckets. So on the SSD side, you have general purpose um, SSD volumes and IO1 provisioned IOPS. Um, and then on the HDD side, you've got ST1 and SC1. Um, T is for throughput and, and C is for cold, um, but I wouldn't worry too much about what the names mean because a lot of the ones um, or volumes um, or way customers we see use these volumes are is that the uh, cold volumes um, work very well for a variety of applications. Um, so I hate to use the word cold because it actually does uh, perform very well. Um, but how does that map to different use cases? Um, so relational, um, uh, on the SSD side, um, databases and um, you know, different types of non-relational databases um, are a very good fit. Um, so anything using random I.O., really, which are going to be databases. On the HDD side, um, it's designed more for sequential and throughput-driven workloads. Um, so whereas SSD is really good for random I.O., um, HDD is good for sequential I.O. Um, and this is going to be, uh, you know, I should have asterisks on most of these, but Kafka, Splunk, Hadoop, data warehousing, um, these could go either way. And we see a variety of different architectures that use sometimes all um, HDD, ST1, and SC1 volumes. Sometimes they use a hybrid um, uh, of volumes as well. Um, and then media storage as well, which is throughput um, uh, driven um, and sequential, which is really good for HDD. Um, so when you think about, you know, what, what volumes you're going to use, um, to kind of break that down further, um, general purpose is a really good um, all-rounder type volume. Um, but when you have SSD volumes and you have to think about what's going to be a better fit for your volume, you know, should I use GP2 or IO1, um, a lot of it comes down to uh, performance consistency. Um, so provision IOPS allows you to provision your IOPS independently. Um, we announced this the other day, but you can now provision, I think, up to 64,000 IOPS per volume. Um, so you can get a lot of um, th um, throughput and up to one uh, gigabyte per second of throughput. So you can get a lot of IOPS and throughput with the volume, um, but uh, GP2, sometimes you can do that together by striping together multiple volumes. Um, and in some aspects, it's a math problem of, you know, how many GP2 volumes do I want to set up and manage versus a single IO1 volume. But the other thing we really encourage people to look at is performance consistency. Um, so IO1 has a performance consistency of within 10% of your provision performance, 99.9% of the time. GP2 is 99% of the time. So it's a small difference. Um, uh, but if your applications are up 24-7 and they um, are sensitive to those types of um, uh, performance characteristics, you definitely want to stick with IO1. It's going to give you a better performance consistency uh, for your applications that need to be running 24-7 and are in production. If not, GP2 is a really good fit for most other workloads. Um, you can use it for um, a variety of different things and adjust it you know, as you go. Um, and it has a, um, a, linear, a linear scale of throughput and IOPS per gigabyte. Um, and then for uh, throughput driven, you've got ST1 and SC1. Um, those work very similarly. It's just a matter of how much throughput do I want. And then you have EBS snapshots as well, 
Um, and so that's something that you want to make sure you leverage um, for backing up your data that I'll go into here in, in a few minutes. Um, so when thinking about what EBS volume I'm going to use, um, the question you have to ask is what is more important to my workload? Is it IOPS or is it going to be throughput? Um, for IOPS-driven workloads, again, you want to choose between GP2 or IO1. Um, and that's going to largely depend on the performance consistency characteristics you want, um, as well as how much max IOPS you want. Again, with IO1 going up to 64,000 IOPS and one gig per second of throughput, whereas GP2 can go up to um, 10,000 IOPS and uh, I think 160 uh, megabytes per second of throughput. You could, again, strike together multiple GP2 volumes using a RAID 0 um, to aggregate that, or you could use a single IO1 volume. Um, and again, that's going to come down to management overhead, um, and then that performance consistency question. Um, so from a um, pricing standpoint, um, so uh, in your SSD, you've got 10 cents per gig US East pricing on GP2. IO1 is 12 and a half cents per gig plus six and a half cents per provisioned IOPS. ST1 is four and a half cents per gig, and SC1 is two and a half cents per gig. Um, so there's a wide array of price points um, depending on what your application is. Um, and kind of what I mentioned earlier on the SC1 volumes, you don't want to think about it just in terms of cold storage. Um, I don't have performance characteristics on here. You, you could view it on our website, but SC1 um, offers up to 250 megabytes per second. So if you have a throughput-driven workload that's sequential, that fits within that, um, it actually gives you more throughput than even GP2. It's not going to be good for you know, small random I.O. applications like databases. Um, but if it's throughput driven, you're actually going to get better performance out of SC1 um, at a quarter of the price. Um, so it's important to think about, again, is that application going to be IOPS driven or is it going to be throughput driven? Um, because you want to make sure you're paying for the right volume um, and getting the best cost per performance on your volumes. Cheaper doesn't mean less performance. Um, it really depends on what your application is driving. And then we have snapshot storage, which is five cents per gig on all volumes. Um, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so a couple best practices I'll talk about here um, that we see as a common pattern with customers that start to migrate enterprise applications to us that we want to make sure is kind of communicated here and, and you guys are able to think about as you migrate applications over. Um, one is EBS optimized. Um, so EBS optimized is a shared network pipe between your EC2 instances and an EBS volume. Um, it used to be you had to select this as a checkbox when you launched your instances. Um, I don't know if there's any instances left that um, you still have to do that for. I think almost all new instance types, it's automatic. Um, so what this offers is before, um, you would have to share your EBS traffic um, with your S3 traffic, um, other EC2 instances, all your internet traffic, um, which um, would compete for, for throughput. EBS Optimize gives you a dedicated pipe. So in this um, instance, we're using a C4-2XL, which gives you a, a dedicated pipe of uh, 125 megabytes per second. Um, so it's a dedicated network bandwidth. Um, you can actually provision up to 80,000 um, IOPS and uh, almost two gigabytes per second of throughput um, by using EBS optimized instances. Um, it's enabled default on most generation instances um, as well. So let me give you an example of why this is important. Um, so in this case, we have a C4 large, um, and I apologize, we're on the C5s now, so this is a little bit older. Um, we have a C4 large, um, which can push up to um, 4,000 um, IOPS. Um, but if you provisioned two GP2 volumes, um, you're expecting to get 6,000 IOPS, you're actually gonna have a bottleneck here. So you wanna make sure that when you pick EB, uh, you know, you pick your EC2 instance, you're picking something that's got the right throughput. Um, I don't have the chart here, but if you Google, I think like EBS throughput uh, optimize or something like that, you'll get a, a chart on our documentation 
that shows what each instance type can do, but you don't want your instance to be the bottleneck. Um, so in this case, um, this wouldn't work, right? You would, you would have that bottleneck. But if you provision one size up on the instance uh, 2XL, that could support up to 8,000 IOPS. Um, so now your 6,000 expected IOPS from your EBS volume would be able to work, and you would actually have some overhead with that as well. Um, there's a caveat here as well. Um, so a lot of the new instance types have throughput bursting. Um, so you can do like a C5 large, um, which can burst up the throughput of what a C5 4XL can do. Um, so that'll allow you to burst without having to provision more CPU and memory than you might need. Um, so you have a couple options on that, but again, uh, really pay attention to what uh, EC2 instance you're using is compared to what your expected IOPS is. Um, another best practice that comes up is you know, when to, to raid. Um, so I mentioned striping together GP2 volumes to get aggregate throughput. And in that previous example, um, there was two volumes striped to get 6,000 um, IOPS. Um, typically, um, if customers have, uh, so there's a couple things. There's uh, storage capacity. Um, each EBS volume can provision up to 16 terabytes. And then um, the max amount of um, IOPS um, a volume can do is, well, it's now 64,000 on IO1. It's 10,000 on GP2. And then throughput as well. So an instance I mentioned can do 80,000 IOPS. So what if you're using GP2 and you need to get that 80,000 IOPS? You would stripe together eight GP2 volumes in a RAID 0. Um, and that will give you the aggregate through, um, throughput and IOPS to your instance. But what you don't want to do is RAID for redundancy. Um, so on-premises, you're very commonly setting up a RAID 1, a RAID 5, or a RAID 10 um, to create redundancy. But with a service, we replicate the data already behind the scenes. So you don't have to worry about that replication. Um, if you're doing a RAID 1, for example, it's going to half your bandwidth. It's going to, um, you're going to have to provision twice the amount of storage. Um, and the other thing is that we can't really guarantee where those volumes are. EBS as a service, you know, when you provision a volume, we've got placement logic that keeps the volumes close enough together to get the best performance while far enough apart um, to reduce any blast radius, um, disk fail and, uh, all the time. And you know, we make that transparent to you as a service by keeping your EBS volume up and running um, and while being able to handle all those as a service in the background. Um, if you do RAID on top of that, it happens at the OS level, and we can't see the OS. Um, so we don't really know where that is, and we can't guarantee that's going to be on separate hardware. Um, so it doesn't really um, always give you the, the um, redundancy that you hope. Um, and again, it's doubling your storage costs and having your bandwidth. So we don't recommend doing it for uh, redundancy. Um, let's talk about keeping your data protected. Um, so with EBS snapshots, um, you know, you've got the ability to store the data on S3 for long-term durability. Um, so S3's got 11 nines of durability. It's spread across three AZs. Um, and so uh, EBS snapshots are going to take point-in-time copies um, and send it to S3. Um, each snapshot um, after the first is incremental, um, so you're only copying changes as they occur, so it's very cost-effective. Um, and uh, they're crash consistent as well. Um, so you could take snapshots regularly. Um, you could schedule them with our uh, lifecycle manager, um, or you could issue your own API calls to take snapshots. And now that it's in S3, um, you could quickly restore into a uh, different availability zone, um, or you can even copy your uh, snapshots between regions as well um, and restore it into uh, instances in different AZs or different regions. So not only does it provide a long-term, cost-effective, durable backup for your data, but it allows you to spin up instances quickly in other uh, availability zones or other regions. 
Um, and one thing I forgot to mention earlier is Storage Gateway, our hybrid product, um, also allows you to store on-premise data as an EBS snapshot, so you could quickly rehydrate into an EBS volume as a, a data migration or a backup mechanism. So I'm going to go over three quick architectures just to give you an idea of how this looks and translates into real-world examples. Um, first, we'll talk about Oracle, then we'll talk a little bit about SAP HANA, and then we'll talk about SQL Server and Windows environments. Um, so Oracle databases on AWS, you can you could um, set it up and manage it yourself, which requires a lot of um, administrative overhead. Um, you could set it up uh, on EC2, I mean, um, or you could set it up on um, RDS, um, which abstracts the need to set up and manage the database server itself. Um, we recommend RDS where you can, um, but for various reasons, um, we'll see people uh, still install it on EC2 and EBS. So we want to talk about some of the best practices with that. Um, so a lot of this kind of ties back to what I was talking about with the um, EBS optimized, um, as well as the multiple volume scenario. Um, so here we have a six terabyte Oracle database that needs 40,000 IOPS and 640 megabytes per second. Um, so in this instance, we set up an R416XL. Um, we set that up because it could push 75,000 IOPS. <clears throat> and we've got multiple volumes underneath the scenes. Uh, we have our root volume, which is 20 gig. We've got our logs volume, which is 100 gig. Both of those are on uh, GP2 volumes. Um, but our data has a much higher performance characteristics, um, so we need that on IO1, and we need a higher performance consistency guarantee. So we use Oracle ASM to stripe across two volumes um, because we can't, as of before Monday anyway, you can only do up to 32,000 IOPS. You can now do 64,000. So you could actually use a single IO1 volume today, but when I created this architecture um, with the 32,000 limit, um, we needed two volumes. So we created two three terabyte volumes, each with 20,000 IOPS to get 40,000 IOPS, um, and stripe that together using the Oracle ASM. Um, and then you want to make sure you back up the data. Um, so you could use um, a fast recovery area is one thing that's commonly used. So if you look at that ST1 two terabyte volume, um, there's a couple ways to send your backup. I mentioned earlier EFS. Um, so EFS is a great place to store your backups. Um, ST1 volumes are really good for that, um, and we have people using Storage Gateway as well. So there's a couple places to put your backups, um, but that fast recovery area lets you keep a point-in-time copy for your first seven days, um, and then you can send um, data to S3 for long-term backup using RMAN. So here's a great way to back up your data and keep something fast, hot, and local for quick backups or long-term um, for the higher durability that you've got with S3. We've got, oh, I did this presentation last in Berlin, so we've got EU Central as the um, examples here, um, but it should be irrelevant. Um, HA and DR is something else to think about. Um, so you've got highly available architectures within the availability zone on EBS. As I mentioned, as a service, we handle that replication underneath the scenes. Um, but let's say you need to have high availability between AZs or different data centers, right? Um, you could use multi-AZ replication um, by using DataGuard. Um, which is very common for Oracle environments. There's third-party software out there as well, but DataGuard is very common. Um, so you can replicate between AZs for high availability, um, or you can replicate between regions as well um, for DR. Um, of course, regions are going to have a slightly higher latency, um, you know, replicating to it, um, but that's a really good DR strategy as well. Um, and here's a big architecture side. This is a little bit of an eyesore, so apologies, but this kind of ties everything together. So it's got your single AZ um, with your um, uh, different root um, logs and uh, Stripe data volumes attached to your Oracle DB instance, sending RBAN backups to S3 while using DataGuard um, between availability zones. Um, and then we use a DR uh, strategy to a different region as well. 
Um, so next we'll talk about SAP HANA. Um, so SAP mandates specific KPIs for HANA and log volumes. Um, so you wanna make sure that you've got um, you know, a certain level of throughput and performance. Um, you've got minimum 400 megs per second, <coughs> excuse me, on HANA data. You've got minimum um, 250 megabytes per second on uh, log data, um, a low latency on the log. Um, and, but both IO1 and GP2 volumes are certified. So in this instance, we've got an X1. Um, so our X1 um, is optimized for HANA workloads. Um, as an in-memory database, it can hold up to um, four terabytes of memory, um, at least on the X1 when I created this slide. And so that allows you to store your data in memory, um, but you also have EBS volumes for root, um, binaries, um, you know, shared um, and uh, log volumes, backup, stage. Um, so you've got a variety of different um, volumes you could use here. And again, it's just picking that best volume for price and performance. So it's a mix of GP2, IO1, and even ST1s in this environment. <coughs> um, so when do you use IO1 or GP2? Again, this comes down to throughput. And this is before our announcement of higher throughput in IOPS on IO1 volumes. Um, but as you're um, moving the data to EBS, um, an IO1 um, with three 1600 gigabyte volumes can do it um, with that 1500 megabytes per second. And that's actually gonna be three, twice that um, with the new um, improvements we made. Um, but it would take 23 minutes um, versus a GP2, which has a lower throughput amount. Um, and that would take over an hour um, to load the data up from a data store into your in-memory. Um, so those are something to think about when choosing different volume types. Um, it's not just the um, throughput and IOPS and performance consistency, but on the throughput level, it's how fast can I move this data in and out of the volume. Um, and elasticity as well. Um, so as you look at migrating environments, sometimes people will start with an R4, then move to an X1. Um, similarly with the uh, EBS volumes, you can use elastic volumes to grow from um, a smaller volume size to a larger volume time to make it easy uh, to scale your data as you grow. Um, and with EBS, um, there's no need to take the volume offline just on the instance size. Um, and then we have a quick start guide that um, covers a lot of this as well. So if you're familiar with our quick starts, it's a great place to get started and look at some simple architectures that incorporate a lot of what we talked about today. Um, and we have a variety of SAP workloads on AWS um, across the board. I'll kind of skip through this for time so we can cover the EBS uh, or the um, Windows piece. Um, so Windows, the last piece we'll talk about today. Um, so you have the option of SQL Server uh, deploying on um, EC2 or RDS. Similar story, right? RDS abstracts the need to set up and run and, and manage your own database and perform patches and updates. Um, but customers that still choose to run it on EC2, we wanna cover some of the best practices with it. Um, so multi-AZ SQL Server on Amazon RDS, um, you've got always on availability groups. Um, so within a region, a lot of the same things we talk about with Oracle and SAP apply um, in creating your log volumes, your root volumes, your data volumes, striping together, you know, making sure you've got the right instance size for throughput, et cetera. So I'm gonna skip over that part, um, but if we think about um, high availability and disaster recovery, <coughs> um, always on availability groups, I'm sorry, um, with RDS you don't have to worry about it, right? You could click a checkbox when you launch the instance. And we'll handle replication between availability zones for you as a service. Um, if you wanna do it yourself, you could set up always on availability groups between AZs. Um, so that's a synchronous commit and provides automatic failover between um, availability zones for that high availability. And then uh, between region, we can do asynchronous um, copies as well. So that'll keep a DR copy in a region, um, you know, away from your primary region. Um, through VPN. 
Um, last thing we'll talk about is best practices on uh, snapshots. Um, so uh, snapshots, we introduced capability to take VSS-aware uh, snapshots last year um, through uh, run instance command. Um, so VSS is kind of more of an application-consistent snapshot that will flush and key the database um, so it's in the state um, and any I.O. in flight is protected. Um, so it's simple. Um, I put new, but this is a year old at this point, but not a lot of customers are aware of it. Um, but when you're taking an EBS snapshot, you could use a policy generator to create an IAM policy. Um, you know, put your action and create your Amazon EC2 type for the IAM role and attach to your instance. Um, call the run command, um, AWS EC2 create VSS, VSS snapshot. Um, select the instance um, that you want to uh, put that through, add the description and tags, um, run the command, and that'll flush uh, the I.O. and freeze the database and take the snapshot for you. Um, so there's multiple ways to do this. In the past, customers would use third-party tools or just issue the command themselves. But by doing it through run instances, um, it makes it a lot easier so you can simplify some of the commands and process with that. Um, and with that, that's kind of uh, it. Um, so you know, as far as thinking about what we went over today with migrating the data and choosing you know, block versus file within block, you know, what are the best types of volumes for my environment? Um, you know, hopefully that was useful. We continue to listen to your feedback and innovate on ways to make this easier. Um, but the goal is we want to be able to have you lift and shift your application seamlessly into AWS and know and use a lot of the same tools that you use on-premises. So um, I'll be up here for the next, uh, you know, five, 10 minutes. Um, and if you guys have questions, feel free to stop by. Otherwise, thank you for coming.